Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where you get to hear the stories and the lessons learned from top industry leaders out there in the field today. With them, we discuss things like data analytics strategy, applications of machine learning and AI, team building, stakeholder management, all the skills that you need to take your career to the next level. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you're having a wonderful week. Today, we have a treat of an episode. We are speaking with Alex Ermolaev. Alex is based in San Francisco, in California. He has a wealth of experience. He started with a very technical background, which he's been able to keep throughout his career, and then ventured into running a finance department, doing product management, being in business development, starting and advising multiple startups. He worked in NVIDIA, and now he's the director of AI at Change Healthcare, which is a big healthcare technology company in the US. Alex is a wealth of knowledge and experience. I had an absolute blast speaking with him, hearing about his journey. I hope that you enjoy the episode just as much. And if you do, please share it with a friend. That would mean the world to me. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the episode with Alex. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Alex. Alex, thank you so much for making the time. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. How are you? Excellent. Very excited. At the beginning of the interview, I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved in the world of data in the first place? What was it that drew you in? What was that first experience for you? Actually, my first experience was pretty long time ago. My original degree was actually in economic cybernetics, and uh, I also got an MBA later. Early in my career, I spent a lot of time working with data, which would be called data scientist now, but now it's used to be called operations analyst. And then during my career, I got a chance to work on different projects. Uh, Some are more data-oriented, a lot of it is software-oriented, so I kind of know the area from both sides. Interesting. Yes. And what was your first project or application that you really enjoyed in the space? It depends how we define the space. Uh, specifically in AI, I think the first project I contributed for was Expert Systems when I was mm-hmm. just right out of college. Expert Systems were an interesting technology which worked actually quite well in very few scenarios. And uh, I think this is kind of informative, the history of AI and history of data science, is that expert systems uh, were able to show up to 70% accuracy when implemented correctly. It did require a certain amount of data, but not as much as the data requirements we have today. But as there were several companies which did a good job and implemented and got very massive benefit from it. And there were a lot of other cases where people spent time, allocated big budget, big teams, and were unable to show the results at the end. And I think it's kind of one of the early cases of AI. And I think it demonstrates that it's very important to find the right project for the technology you have and don't make an assumption that technology can do something that's not able to do yet, but it's coming or it's about to be there or something. It's almost best to make sure you choose fewer projects and you invest sufficiently and you choose the projects very carefully so you can get to the results rather than spending a lot of money and time and achieving nothing. So in my case, I worked, that experience was at Bell Labs and we had an expert system which basically were able to solve the problem with telecom equipment. So every night our system would call into the switches, telecom switches all over the country, into the private switches installed at company locations, and to run diagnostics, and then try to fix the problem. So if the diagnostics produce an alarm, our expert system was able to resolve this alarm in 70% of the cases. So it's one wow. of the first and one of the very successful implementation of the expert system. Not the only one. IBM did a great job implementing expert system for tracking defects and hard drives. It's another well-known example. But overall, in the expert system world, the number of success stories is not as big as we would hope. But when the things yeah. were done well, it did work. Yes, that's right. And interesting to be involved in this type of technology so early on. And could you give us an overview of your career since then until now? 
So I got my degrees in economic cybernetics. Cybernetics is called artificial intelligence today. I got my degree in Moscow. At the end of the studies, I came to United States for internship at the Bell Labs and basically stayed here in the country. After Bell Labs, I got my MBA. I worked for Microsoft for seven years in different roles, some technical, some business. I did product management, I did business development. I was head of one of the departments in finance of all places. Then I did startups for seven or eight years. I built a couple startups. I advised about two dozen over time. During my startup years, I did get a chance to work on several AI projects, mostly a contributor. I always keep looking for those type of projects, and they always show up in a strange places. Like, it's usually one-off idea, which might or might not work, but there were always some small number of AI projects in the background. Some people try to use AI to, let's say, ensure that the TV advertisement is shown at appropriate times, for example. So they take a picture of TV stream, take one frame and check against what they were supposed to show. Some people used it for different uh, optical character recognition, obviously. Some people use it for different brand logo type stuff. So there were always some number of AI projects, but they've always been small and always kind of in the background. And uh, about five years ago, AI started getting a lot of attention again. And that happened after Alex Krzyzewski and Elias Utskever, they wrote their paper at the University of Toronto, where they were able to show very good results for image recognition. The paper was, mm-hmm. I think, written in 2012, I think mm-hmm. published in 2013. And since that time, what this paper demonstrated is it is possible to achieve much higher level accuracy with AI systems than we were able to see before. And that high level of accuracy opens a bunch of new scenarios which were basically impossible or unaddressable prior to that point. That paper published in 2013 by Alex and Elias Utskever actually changed the whole course of development. Suddenly you have a massive number of companies interested in AI. All of big tech companies are all hiring and buying scientists and investing heavily in AI. A lot of other companies doing now. So it's much, much, much broader now. So as the AI start becoming popular again, I decided that I'm going to dedicate all of my time to AI projects and nothing else. I spent a couple of years working for NVIDIA. NVIDIA is a chip manufacturer. It produces graphical processing units. It's a parallel processing microprocessor. So what we did at NVIDIA, we were able to repurpose the microprocessor, which was traditionally used for graphics applications, into the chip for AI compute. So it's kind of a very wild time, but within a couple of years, NVIDIA became a dominant parallel processing computing platform for AI. In the process, we built like $1 billion business within a period of two years. Very rapid wow. and very hectic uh, ride. After NVIDIA, I uh, spent some time working on several small projects for the, about three months. Some on self-driving, some in tools, developer tools for AI. And after that, I joined uh, Change Healthcare. Change Healthcare is one of the largest technology company for the healthcare industry. And uh, it's not a very well-known company. The name recognition isn't very high because it was formed through a lot of acquisitions. But mm-hmm. today, Change Healthcare manage about 60% of medical claims in the United States, about 20% yeah. of medical imaging, 20% of electronic health records. So it's a company which has massive mm-hmm. amount of data. It's like the largest data management company in the healthcare industry. The idea was, since this is the company that has all the data, in healthcare space, and the data is what's the biggest limitation at the moment for AI algorithms. Therefore, this company should be the one that's best positioned to take advantage of AI revolution and apply it to healthcare. So the company decided to build a large team, hire a lot of good people, and in order to pursue this opportunity very aggressively. So we have a team uh, based in San Francisco, about 60 people now, trying to apply AI to all of the different data sets we have across the company. And some of it is medical claims, which is document which, you know, several pages long, which describes what happens and what was done. We do it for medical text understanding, looking at the person's complete medical history and charts and looking at what happened doing some of the patient identification, which is more of a traditional, like a recommender system or marketing type AI uh, applications. And finally, a lot of workflow. I have several examples, but I can probably give you those examples during the interview. 
That sounds so exciting. That's uh, fantastic. Thank you for that. It seems like you've always been quite technical and obviously now doing so much work in AI. It seems that you're very strong in that space. How did you find it when you were moving into leading finance function in companies or doing business development for some time? And, and how did you find that transition between the technical side and the business side? How did you manage that those moves and what did you learn? Yeah, I think in my case, it's kind of an interesting journey. When I joined Microsoft, I joined a finance team. So I was a worldwide licensing and pricing controller for Microsoft for a couple of years, which is basically like a finance director, which manage a particular part of the organization. In, case, in this case, I was finance director for the licensing, Microsoft licensing, which was like $14 billion business. And we did a lot of work with business models. But this is kind of a job that you have right after MBA. I enjoyed it, but uh, a lot of data, obviously. The tools we have at Microsoft are pretty much the same tools that people only now get in you know, elsewhere. And that was like 15 years ago. But uh, in most of the cases, I am actually kind of a hybrid because in places where I'm the most valuable is when I'm building the bridge between the business and technology because I can understand technology and I can uh, talk business, look at code and tell people what's working, what's not. But I'm also able to talk in a business language and communicate with business people and help them understand what's going on. So in most of my jobs, the optimal place for me is something that requires both the knowledge of technology and understanding of the business. So that's kind of my role. And how did you develop the skills on the business side? Do you feel that that was primarily through the MBA or did you have particular professional experiences that helped you on that side? MBA, uh, yes. But then I think the best way to develop knowledge in any area is just move into that area. So I was in finance for three years and they say, whatever, you need 10,000 hours of experience now to be good at something, right? So basically, you moved an area, you spent long hours learning the craft, and that's kind of how you learn, and then you move to another area. And my resume is a little bit strange for most people because it almost looks like rotational experience that I spent three years in finance and three years in product management and three years in business development. Um, but this is kind of works well for me, so moving around and learning new skills. I understand this is not traditional, but this has certainly worked well for me personally. Keep me on my toes, keep me interested. Exactly. And I think that the skills that are so important and so relevant in data science today, and it's something that I see a lot of people in the space that we need to improve our business skills, our communication skills, our product development. Well, how have you seen those additional skills benefit your career? Oh, it's a benefit you greatly. I think uh, in general, you enter a new job or new role or new company as more of a technical specialist. So if you join a new company, you generally looked at for your technical skills. But in order to move up or move into different roles or just continue to progress within your career, you tend to rely more on your general soft skills, ability to manage people, ability to communicate, get things done, influence others, all those kind of things. Knowing the business, understanding the business. I think in general, in data science, we definitely have a shortage of those skills at the moment. A lot of data scientists come from a technical background and don't necessarily spend as much time. A lot of younger data scientists, at least, tend to come from a technical background because the tools are still kind of hard to use. You need to have a lot of background knowledge. But I think over time, is this particular role becomes a little bit more mature. I think everybody is picks up subject matter expertise in the areas they're working in. They learn more about the business. They're helping to optimize. So I think overall, over time, we all improve in that space. Yes, that's good. And how was your move to business development? Is that something that you seeked out or an opportunity that came to you, you decided to take it? How did that happen? It actually was kind of a little bit more of an accident. So I was doing product management for the products that Microsoft was developing for business application market. And then the opportunity became at some point to work with other people doing something that Microsoft was doing, but in a different segment or in a complementary way. So basically I had some subject matter knowledge and I was able to bring it with me, the understanding of the actual space and work with other people doing something very similar to what we were doing internally. Uh, so it's a little bit of an accident, I guess. 
Yeah, and what do you think of that experience looking back? Oh, it was great experience. I think business development is very essential. You learn many skills which you don't learn in other areas because it's easier to sit in the office and assume that the world works a certain way. And once you get out there, you will quickly realize that it doesn't work the way you expect it to work. And that's kind of the most essential part of the business development, trying to kind of find a way to get the things done, even though the world is not what one would hope it is. And uh, it was actually a fun experience. That was uh, the last few years at my time at Microsoft. The product we had was very international. We did quite a bit of travel internationally to all the big cities, big markets. So it was also a fun experience to see the world. That's really good. And I know it was uh, a while back, but do you remember something that you had one perspective coming into that role? And then in that role, you had to learned that the world was worked in a different way or that the world had a, a different perspective and then that you had to adjust during your time doing that role? Yeah, I think um, maybe the way I can describe the following way, like let's say I go for a business trip to Europe for a week and let's say I'm in the office and I kind of know what's going on and I go for a week, I see so many new things, I get so much new information, I meet so many new people and come back to the office and in the office there is nothing changed. So I think from that point of view, that's kind of one example where just you realize that the company operates in a certain way, which can be successful at the time, right? If you focus on one thing and you do it very well, you can be very successful. But there are many cases where the perspectives that you have and the way the company operates might not be necessarily what the world wants. And sometimes the companies see roles like business development as externally kind of oriented. So it's more of a company communicating with the world. But I think uh, the best way of using those roles is actually the opposite, learn how the world wants to operate and bring this information back to the company and be able to change the company to accomplish those goals. I think that's kind of a more productive way of thinking about it. Really great. And what led you to going to startups after that? Microsoft was maturing as a company, and I felt that I acquired sufficient amount of information to start my own business. I worked on several startups. That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot because in startups, uh, certain things are easier, right? You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You only do essential things. You don't have to worry about all the massive amount of administration and the communication and the collaboration and coordination, which is not really necessary. In the startup world, you only focus on solving your specific problem and all of the peripheral stuff, you just drop it, right? You just don't do it. So that was fun. But also within the startup world, the amount of resources you have is suddenly very limited. It's not like you don't have enough resources. You just sometimes have none, right? Because having less resources is actually sometimes useful because it helps people to be productive. But when you have no resources at all or like next to nothing, right? That's quite a bit of a challenge. And then startups spend a massive amount of time figuring out how to get those resources, building the decks, pitching investors, and doing a lot of other things, which works, but it's also a very significant amount of time. And so some of the things that you wanted to not do while working for the large companies, some of the things like managing expectations, those kind of things. Once you become a startup founder, you often find yourself doing the same things, managing expectations, acquiring allies, and doing all this other things. Very true. Good lessons from the corporate world that translate into the startup world quite nicely then. What type of applications or problems were you tackling with your startups over time? So some of the early applications we did were, it was several startups, so I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. Some of them were in developer tools, where we were building different uh, tools to work with technologies which are no longer that popular anymore, but at the times they were hot, like uh, Flash and Silverlight. Later, I had a bigger startup where I spent a large amount of time, which was focused on real-time communication. So we were building something kind of in a go-to-meeting space, but uh, we were trying to go after different market with different scenario, but still a real-time with video communication over the internet. So in that respect, it's kind of similar to go-to-meeting and WebEx, but we were trying to do it for different scenarios like real-time sales. So you go to the internet, you see something online, you click the button and you talk to somebody, like real-time voice and video. We were basically a little too early for that particular market, but I still believe that there will be some point at which this particular market will work very well for everybody. Yes, I agree. How do you feel about that? 
being too early or possibly being too early with an idea. How do you feel about that now and what did you learn from pursuing it nonetheless? Yeah, I think um, as a startup, you want to be a couple years early because before you put something together, it takes a couple years. So you do want to be early, but the question is how to be a couple years early, but not four and not zero, right? As a startup, if you're trying to be ahead of the market, you're always taking risks. The risks are not eliminated fully. You take a risk and you just accept that the fact that there is a risk in, in doing something new. The risk cannot be eliminated, right? The risk is just a part of the game. And if you like doing something new and if you're willing to take a risk and uh, if you are in a position to do so, because if you have a kids to feed, then don't do this. So I think it's very important for people to understand their interest in doing something innovative and their own risk tolerance. And if you have a reasonably high risk tolerance and you're strongly interested in innovation, that's a good path for you. If you want to see something predictable or something guaranteed, just don't do startups. It's not going to work from that point of view. Every type of person with your own risk profile and your interest should choose a path optimal for you. Don't try to be in startups because it's cool. Try to find a path which is, meets your own needs. Very good advice. And when you went into startups, was it in line with your risk tolerance? Yes. Moving into that risky world? Yeah, for me, it was a good match. Obviously, I wish we were not that early, but um, we were a bit early. But that was a great experience, and I'm sure I would love to do it again. There is a good quote from, I think it was Max Levchin who said, First time I did startup, we got nothing. The second time we did a startup, we got next to nothing. The third time we did a startup, I ended up with enough money to buy Starbucks for a year. And his attempt okay. number four, he became billionaire on PayPal. So yeah, wow. I didn't get to my <laughs> attempt number four, but we'll see. Maybe I'll get there one day. Great. That would be fantastic. And from startups, you moved into NVIDIA. Is that right? Yes. After being in startups for several years, having income from time to time, but it was a little bit um, unpredictable environment, right? I wanted to figure out who is making money on AI. And I looked around in 2015, say, okay, who can make money in AI? And of course, when the industry is so early and uh, a lot of things don't work as expected, the best way to make money is to sell shovels, right, for the gold rush. And NVIDIA was a company that's yes. very well to sell the shovel for the AI gold rush because the chips that they made was suitable for the type of AI applications which were getting a lot of traction at the moment for deep learning. So for deep learning, NVIDIA is a very good match. So 2015, as I was looking for who is going to be like some of the early beneficiary of the AI, of the new AI revolution, <laughs> NVIDIA was uh, an attractive. And they were like not reasonable proximity from my house and uh, company with a certain amount of security, but also an opportunity to enter this particular market. And uh, for me, I'm a little bit less interested in other part of NVIDIA. I'm not really hardware guy. I'm not really graphics guy. But AI in particular was very interesting to me because of my prior experience and my personal interest. So I joined NVIDIA and I was the head of AI developer relations. So where we built very powerful business within a couple of years. That was a pretty wild ride. Wow. And what is the role of developer relations? It's actually kind of not the same for every company, but uh, my role had a couple things. Some of it is working with developers who are trying to build AI applications on an NVIDIA platform. And part of the role is working with the large companies some of the largest software companies which were trying to ad adopt NVIDIA technology. And uh, the set of questions slightly different for the startups or for the smaller companies as they try to make something work pretty fast. For larger companies, they want to understand how to take NVIDIA technology and integrate it into their own stack, how to make it work. So it's uh, with the larger companies, a lot of kind of ongoing meetings when you have calls every couple of weeks or every month where you discuss the next set of issues that needs to be resolved. For working with startups, it's a lot of uh, broader outreach, speaking at the conferences, helping the community to understand what's possible and help them develop those algorithms or those, uh, the technologies that they need to develop for their specific use case. But overall, as a result of my work, there are hundreds of people who are dedicated to writing the platforms on top of NVIDIA stack, and there are thousands of people doing AI now. It's become pretty big market pretty fast. Exactly right. 
your role there sounds amazing, actually, because you'd be helping organizations across the board adopting the tools of AI for their particular applications. So I'm sure in a week, you'd see a number of completely different applications of AI and get to work and interact with the people trying to solve those problems. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I saw hundreds of different use cases and I saw a lot of people succeeding. I saw a lot of people failing. The use cases were all over the place. Some were speech, some were imaging, some were text, some were more traditional, like cyber or fraud, a lot of enterprise AI. So a lot of use cases all over the place. The number of use cases suitable for AI is actually, on one hand, is kind of tremendous. It's a thousand different use cases where AI can actually help solve the problem right now, today. At the same time, not every use case is manageable can be addressed using AI. So on one hand, you have thousands of use cases. On the other hand, you have a lot of situations where people try to solve the specific problems that they have. And what you find is AI is not what they need. They need to solve some other problem, which can be data problem or other technology problem or organizational problem. So while the number of use cases for AI is actually kind of huge, at the same time, once you look at specific role or specific problems that people have, not every problem can be addressed using AI. Very true. What were some of the commonalities that you saw in applications that succeeded and versus the applications that, that didn't? So I usually talk about pattern, problem, and data, those three components. The first one is a pattern. So AI today, as we know, narrow AI, the technology we have today, including deep learning, artificial narrow intelligence. This technology is basically pattern recognition technology, pattern matching. So you find a pattern and data, and then you use these patterns that you found to either predict or detect something. As you look through the data, the first thing you need to make sure there is a pattern there. The pattern has to be strong and persistent. There are many cases where patterns don't exist or they're not strong. For example, in stock markets, the patterns tend to be weak because most of the useful information is actually outside the stock market itself, not embedded in the stock price, but it's in uh, outside the stock market in a corporate announcements or in market sentiments or purchase orders or whatever it is. The patterns within the stock market itself tend to be weak. So it's one area where a lot of people try to apply AI and they get some progress, but it's a hard work and it's incremental uh, improvements. Even though, even within stock markets, there are some areas where AI can be applicable more successfully, like foreign exchange and some kind of specific areas where it works well. But overall, you know, in general, just looking at the stock market and predicting the, the price next day is not very good uh, example of AI usage. Where it works very well is where the patterns are strong and persistent, but they're slightly different. So, for example, viruses, the viruses we have, computer viruses, there are several millions of new viruses, a couple million viruses generated every day, a couple million new viruses. But all of them explore the same exploits within operating systems. So the number of exploits is like five per year, and number of viruses is like two million per day. So a lot of the computer viruses are basically variation on the same thing, right? They're slightly different, but they do pretty much the same thing. And this is uh, great for AI because for AI pattern recognition is the most important. So you want something that's kind of the same, but slightly different. And therefore, what you learn by looking at the old viruses can be applied to finding new ones. So I think computer viruses is a very good example of the pattern uh, recognition technology uh, we have today. Fraud, fraud is another example where AI works very well because fraud tends to be done in certain patterns, whether it's telecom fraud or e-commerce fraud or financial fraud, it usually follows a particular pattern where people do certain things in certain order in order to scam the bank. And once you learn what people do and how they do it, you can detect when they do it the next time. So you detect the pattern and then you apply it to future cases to prevent additional fraud. Those kind of scenarios are very good. A lot of the good scenarios are, again, patterns that are repetitive. For example, looking for defects in the production lines in the industrial scenario. When the fabric comes off the machine, for example, you can train AI to detect defects in fabric. You don't need to use human for that. So it's a pattern. The pattern is 
it still takes a lot of efforts to program the computer to do it, but the pattern is there, the pattern is pretty clear, and you can train AI to understand the recognized pattern and take actions when something goes wrong. Very true. Did you have much involvement with people that had to create new sensors or that were doing work, I guess, in the IoT space in order to capture the data to be fed to the AI that they were building? Oh, yeah. So AI usually were kind of downstream from that. Some of the examples we have is like every time the plane takes a flight, it lands in a new airport, it collects massive amount of data, like five terabytes of data because it has tons of different sensors, it's all recorded, and you download this amount of data from the different IoT systems, and then you have that massive amount of data where people basically don't know what to do with it, because you have everything, but what do you do with such a huge amount of data? And that's where AI comes in. IoT comes first, capturing everything, 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 and then once you have the data, you can apply AI to detect very specific things. But based on the amount of data you have, let's say after each plane flight, you can pretty much determine pretty accurately how soon the engine is going to fail, right? For example. Mm. So you can predict agent failure based on the vibration of something, something, right? The data is already there. The AI algorithms have to be improved and developed specifically for this application. But once you have this type of information, if you can predict the engine failure pretty accurately, then you're actually saving tons of money because you don't need to run technicians with every potential alert because you kind of have an idea. You can basically predict much more accurately when the engine needs to be replaced, when the crew needs to be dispatched, and when the alert can be ignored because it's not a problem. Like this particular application, you can save billions of dollars just by having this prediction of the engine health. Exactly right. And tell me what type of things you're working on at the moment. So right now we work in the healthcare space. Change Healthcare is one of the largest healthcare technology company which manage massive amount of data. In healthcare system in the United States, there are a lot of inefficiencies. The government call it fraud, waste, and abuse, plus a bunch of errors or unnecessary services. A lot of this inefficiency can be captured and eliminated if people want to do so. Let me give you one example. We recently launched claim lifecycle AI capabilities. It's going to be a whole bunch of different uh, prediction capabilities. The first one is just predicting where the claim is going to be denied or if it's going to be paid. Very kind of simple question, but in the United States alone, we have $262 billion worth of claim getting stuck in the process. The hospital will submit a claim to insurance company which describes what was done exactly. Six weeks later, they get an answer. You forgot an attachment. And then you have to resubmit. And the hospital says, I already did the attachment, but you lost it or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's ridiculous. Sometimes it's much more meaningful conversation where the question is of eligibility, pre-approval, all of other things. But overall, in the United States alone, it's $262 billion worth of claims get stuck in this administrative process. Uh, sometimes it's necessary. Most of the time, it's uh, just something that wasn't completed right, that wasn't submitted right. Or the insurance companies might have additional expectations, which hospital didn't know that they're supposed to have. I mean, there's all kinds of different ways of doing things on hospital side as well as on the insurance side. But basically, there is massive amount of inefficiency. And if we can improve this process, we can save a huge amount of money for the system over something that is very straightforward. So this yes. is one example where you can improve the system very significantly and have a massive, massive impact with a pretty doable AI project. What does that project look like? We have a team. We put together a team. The team has, as usual, data scientists, data engineers, software engineers, and subject matter experts. A lot of the data we use is the data we already have in our systems, historical data uh -huh. of medical claims. Since we manage such a huge amount of data, we manage about 14 billion transactions per year. Since we manage such a huge amount of data, we can train the algorithms to find a pattern. For example, you know, one insurance company might more likely to decline a claim which has something done certain way. And the other insurance company might do it for a different reason, right? People submitting claim obviously have no idea how it's done. But if you look at the records, insurance companies are not doing things randomly. There is a pattern why they find something eligible for reimbursement and other things are not. 
we can train the algorithms to detect those patterns on the overall data. The accuracy can be vary if we train the algorithm on the data specific to hospital. Obviously, the accuracy will be even higher. So because there is difference between hospitals, there is difference between insurance companies. For a human, just to remember, all that stuff is pretty mm -hmm. much impossible. But for AI, it's very doable. We don't even need to do like medical text understanding for this. Just uh, the data we have in a clean system, just structured data, all the codes and the rules and procedures, it's sufficient to generate pretty massive savings uh, for that. That's really great. With a huge amount of data that you guys have, how do you pick which applications of AI to tackle? Yeah, actually, I mentioned early interviews that we look at three things, patterns, problem, and data. I kind of mm -hmm. talked about patterns, but I didn't talk about other things. So a lot of the time we spent is evaluating the problem space because what we want to have is a problem that's big, expensive, and the core to what we do. Claims is obviously a very expensive problem for the industry overall, a very expensive, very big problem. And what we try to do is we don't actually do any development, any data science work until we have a complete evaluation of the opportunity. And the complete evaluation includes financial estimation, how much money we can save by doing something, and how much money we can make as a company. And in general, like in case of claim, if we save billions of dollars and capture 1% of that as a revenue, that's good enough. We don't really need to capture a lot. Just capturing 1% of the savings is good enough because the numbers are so huge. Yeah, we do full financial relations, so like what the business model like, how we're going to get the investments back. I will also do very extensive legal review because in the United States, healthcare is highly regulated industry. And there is actually three different things, compliance, legal, and contractual. So we do very in-depth analysis. Sometimes the legal review takes longer than AI development, but that's uh -huh. kind of part of, the, part of the situation. But in basic terms, if we're using our client data to improve the products offered to that specific client, so we're improving the products we're already offering to them, there is not that much restrictions on improving the products we're already providing. So there are some cases where the legal review is pretty straightforward. There are other cases where it's a little bit not. In some cases, we need to do the contract adjustments where we adjust the contract and resign it for the customer to make sure everything is done correctly. So it just depends on the situation. So we always start with feasibility, which has to be financial, which has to be feasible from AI algorithms point of view, because not all the problems we're able to solve using technology we have today. And the third part is the legal review. So it has to be financially feasible. It has to be feasible technically, so we can actually do it. And it has to be legally feasible, so we meet all the legal and compliance requirements we have. Great. And at that point, then you choose to embark or take on the project. Yeah. After that, once we have this analysis done, we basically go after the biggest opportunities we have. Some of the biggest opportunities we have can pay for the cost of AI development within the first year. Those are the easiest projects to do if you can generate the money right away, then obviously much easier to get approval from the management for doing the work. Some of the projects don't generate as much return and then might need to several years to pay back. So those projects usually put lower in a stack so we can get to them a little bit later than the projects which are generating immediate returns. Yes. That makes sense. At what point in the process of bringing one of these projects to life do you incorporate the end user? Well, in our case, in most cases, the end user is the one of the business units within the company, and they are uh -huh. for those type of projects. So uh, they, they are from the very beginning. Financial feasibility is done based on, basically, we get all the numbers we get from them. We don't have any other sources of numbers. So financial feasibility done based on what they think they can generate in revenue or reduce in terms of costs. So it's their numbers. Financial feasibility is their number. The data that we use is their data. So they're providing the data as well. And then they're using the results of our modeling, the models we develop or APIs we build to put into their own process. So they are basically always involved because we can't really do much without them. That makes sense. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Yeah. And I was also thinking that in the case of healthcare, sometimes the customer that pays for something is very different to the user that would be using the new product. So that's why I wanted to ask about yes. that. But it sounds like in your case, it's, it's closer together. Sorry? Yes. So in our case, a lot of the projects we're doing initially are the projects for internal business units. So we're basically enhancing existing products using AI. 
And uh, that's much faster, right? So like there is existing products with company already offering. We make those products better or more efficient. It can be products or services. And we make them cheaper or better or more efficient or more effective. We generate revenue this way. So this allows us to cut the development time significantly. Now, we do have uh, plans to build brand new products from scratch. So the products the company offer, but we plan to develop. So we have few things in the works for that. But this would obviously a lot longer process that might take two or three years to do. So our first priority is to enhance the existing products, generate some returns, show the credibility, show we can do a good job, and then start doing brand new products from scratch. Great. And is there a particular application or project that you have worked on in this role or are working on that you're particularly excited about? I think some of the more exciting things are things that can be used in many different ways and can improve situation like across the board. For example, I think like medical text understanding is a very good example uh-huh. of that. In the United States, when patients become a regular customer of the healthcare system, people who have a chronic condition or things like that, we end up generating a very substantial amount of information on that person. There will be results, lab results for many years, done every few weeks, and there's complete medical history with different physicians um, entering the information, and we get two, 400 pages on the medical chart. This type of information is extremely valuable, but this type of intelligence is actually being underutilized in the healthcare system. The doctors obviously know their patients personally and they know all the conditions. A lot of the things can be done better if we simply use the data we're already generating. For example, you can use the data generated within a system to do prediction for different medical conditions ahead of time. And this is where the AI can help. And it can be done on a time series data, like lab results, where you can track minor changes in the results. Obviously, doctors do it for the main parameters, right? They're looking for the main trends. But you can use AI to generate much more uh, nuanced understanding whether the person getting better or worse or developing particular side conditions. You can use, and this is from a time series from lab results, you can do a lot of diagnostics from using imaging, which are part of electronic health records. You can use a lot of things even on text. For example, somebody wrote a paper where they basically just detected, they looked at HIV population, people with HIVs, and look for how many of them have depression. So if the person has depression, it's actually in the medical records. It's in the chart. So it's already in the in the uh-huh. system. They don't often receive any additional treatment. And if you can simply provide additional treatment for depression, the outcome can be improved significantly. I don't know if I'm making it clear, but for many of the yes. chronic patients, there are multiple conditions, and the patients often treated for the main condition, mm-hmm. and the secondary or the third things, secondary or third other things don't get captured or don't get uh, treated for. And by simply yes. providing more comprehensive care across all specialties, you can significantly improve the outcomes. And then this Depression is one of the things that's very easy to detect because people say they don't feel good, right? So whatever, they say it. It's in the records. But unless you treat it, your probability of survival or your outcomes are not going to be very good. So interesting. That is an amazing application that can impact the lives of so many people. What would the rollout or the execution of a project like that look like once, say, the the AI is developed that is able to pick the people that need treatment for conditions that are not being treated for? What would happen with a recommendation after that? Yeah, it's actually a very big question. Within healthcare system, you are trying to introduce a piece of technology into a very human-like, very human process, right? And there are those type of tensions or like difficulties both on the data capture as well as the incorporating the results into the workflow. Because in order to have the data, the data has to be in the system. But let's say, suppose the data is in there, then what happens? Who is getting notified? Who is going to get paged? And whether the results are accurate enough so the healthcare professionals don't ignore them, but actually act on them and change the way they treat particular patients. So in healthcare, AI is often part of the problem, but not the 
only part. The bigger problem is if something is detected, we have to detect it with a very high degree of accuracy or otherwise the healthcare professionals will not react. And then if something is detected and the accuracy is high enough, who is going to do what, how different, right? Who is going to run somewhere, something, and etc. So you actually have, in order for AI to be effective in many cases in healthcare organization, you actually have to change the human processes to react to those AI recommendations. Yes. And is that a challenge that you've had to tackle so far or is that upcoming? In this particular case, we haven't uh, got far enough to deal with this problem. There are people who experience challenges working with a healthcare system on a regular basis. Many startups have a lot of problem getting the data. So in the United States, there is a lot of startups who are funded doing AI in healthcare. That's like several thousand. More than a thousand startups get funded. Wow. And the process is usually takes, let's say, six months to get funded or whatever, something like that, right? So you got the funding. Then takes another six months to hire a team of AI engineers, data scientists. Sometimes you get more junior people than you'd like, but let's say it takes six months to get the team. And then it often takes 18 months for a startup to actually get the data that's usable. And then they develop the algorithm and then they try to implement the algorithms in the healthcare system. And the question is, like I already mentioned, so who is going to do something different based on yes. whatever AI recommends? Because unless somebody does something differently, your AI is not being used. In, you know, it doesn't matter that mm -hmm. your prediction is accurate or not. It has to be a human process where somebody will do something differently, which will result in human out in better outcome. Um, otherwise, Correct. AI is not going to be very effective, even though it might be perfectly wonderful algorithm. Exactly. And that might be the tougher question. <laughs> Who is going to change their behavior and how are they going to change it? It might be a tougher question than developing the AI sometimes. Sometimes it is, but that's kind of happens with the new technology. So every time we have a new technology coming, like big innovation waves, it usually comes in different stages. Like, let's say the couple of the recent waves of big long innovation waves were driven by internal combustion engine and the semiconductor circuits. So internal combustion engine early 20th century. We started from just figuring out how to build the engine, then it's moved to the mass production of cars. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is we got actually most of the economic benefit by restructuring society around that innovation. Not from the innovation itself, but from the restructuring of society. So building out suburbs, shopping malls, yes. movie theaters, that's kind of the side effect of internal combustion engine. And uh, for the internet, the core, sorry, not for the computing wave, the core innovation is semiconductor circuit and then mass production of computing, but then a lot of the benefit we get from telecommuting, from talking to people overseas, like we're doing right now, from internet, which is all like byproducts or side effects, where society restructured the way it does things around the new technology. So I think with AI, it's going to be kind of the same way. The first thing we need to figure out just how to make it work, then we'll start producing AI algorithms in mass cheaply, quickly, just crank them out on a conveyor belt like we do computers today. But the biggest benefit will come later when we actually structure the society around those AI algorithms. In healthcare from that point is very exciting. For example, many of the basic applications of AI in healthcare are detect something or predict something. Let's say there were a couple of good papers recently. One demonstrated that you can predict Alzheimer five years earlier than before or six wow. years earlier than before. And another one is you can predict breast cancer five years earlier than before. The AI itself just gives you the prediction. The prediction itself is what AI does. But the biggest value is actually not the prediction itself, but what are you going to do about it, right? It's like if you That's can right. detect Alzheimer's six years earlier or breast cancer five years earlier, we probably don't even have a therapist to involve that early because yes. it's not going to be chemotherapy or it's not going to be radiation because the cancer is not quite cancer yet. It's kind of the prior cancer. So we need a new technology, so new procedures to treat it. But once we do, once we figure out how to restructure the things around our new predictive capabilities, maybe we're not going to have a breast cancer as a problem in the world. Who knows, right? Wow, that is incredible. I'm so glad that we have people like you and your team working on these type of challenges. It is exactly what we need, what we need in the world. I wanted to ask you uh, two questions before we wrap up. I'm so curious because you've had such an varied and amazing background 
and trajectory in your career. So I wanted to ask you, what are you most proud of that you've done in your career? I kind of have several things that are kind of interesting. I had several experiences where I had to build a billion-dollar business. And uh, in my last job at Microsoft, to build a billion-dollar division for Microsoft, a lot was through acquisitions. At NVIDIA, we built a billion-dollar business also within a couple of years by finding a new market for existing semiconductors, so finding or developing AI market for the GPU circuits. I believe within healthcare system, we have at least as much opportunity to make impact. I believe we have a, at least billion-dollar opportunity to do what we're doing. Just uh, focus on innovation. I think this is something that I personally enjoy. And sometimes it's difficult to quantify the results because innovation is obviously not as predictable as running a big business. So sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail. But this is something that I personally enjoy greatly and that's something that um, I think uh, will be left after I'm gone. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that might be the answer to the last question that I wanted to ask you, which is a piece of advice that you would like to give the listeners. You might have just given the answer, but what would you say to them? I would probably say that we're currently in early stages of AI adoption. Some of the projects that I mentioned are very doable today, and some projects are a little bit longer term. And uh, I think my advice is be patient, invest in your skill set and your knowledge, and uh, choose your projects wisely, because there are some things you can do with AI today, which is a little bit more pedestrian, like solving the claims problems, where we can make very big impact today without waiting or without spending a lot of money or spending many years working on it. Other AI problems a little bit further out. Some of the other things I mentioned, like solving the breast cancer problem or Alzheimer, that will probably take us a few years. So sometimes you work for an organization which has a long-term vision and able to invest in it for several years, and that's great. In other cases, you don't have this ability to work on a single project on 10 years until it produces results. So uh, choose your projects wisely and kind of don't assume that moonshot solve cancer problem is necessarily the best one because the fact is we're early in this AI adoption. Some of the tools we have are not perfect. Some of the knowledge we have is actually lacking. So, but uh, if you continue working on data science and pushing the boundaries, I think we have a tremendous opportunity and we can make a huge progress for the society. That is a fantastic note to end on. Alex, thank you so much for sharing all your insights, your wisdom, your perspectives, your journey, all the lessons learned. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.